1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thank you very much for joining me on what is a very wet and rainy day in Vancouver today. I just got off the Skype phone with Chris Peterson to talk about her new book, Speculative Markets, Drug Circuits and Derivative Life in Nigeria. This came out in 2014 with Duke University Press. And it's a really interesting study of a very particular market in West Africa, uh, in Nigeria specifically, that looks at the context of pharmaceutical traders and pharmaceutical trade there as a way of opening up how we understand global markets, the ontology of markets, the ways that particular forms of market behavior are shaped by particular historical circumstances and really how we might take these more nuanced, more rich, more open understandings of how, what, where, and why markets are and bring those to studies well beyond this particular case study of uh, pharmaceutical markets in Nigeria. It's a really, really interesting story that's very, very careful about the weaving together of the particular pharmaceutical history, the drug history, the drug trade story and ethnography here, with a a really, really, really thoughtful exploration of what it can mean to think with markets. So it's a fascinating story. It was great to talk with Chris about it. And I hope you have a chance to get your hands on the book and take a look, because there's a lot of stuff in here. A lot of oral histories, a lot of personal accounts, a lot of descriptions of historical and conceptual phenomena that we didn't have time to get to. So really, really great study. Great time talking with Chris. And thank you, as ever, for taking the time to listen to the conversation. Thanks for your support, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Kristen Peterson about her new book, Speculative Markets. Welcome to New Books in STS, Chris, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you, Carla. Thanks for having me. So let's start us off as is traditional for the channel by saying a little bit about your background and specifically how did you come to work in anthropology and on Nigeria in particular?
0: Well, I began as a an undergraduate in biology at UC Santa Barbara and I, um, was trying to actually get a job after I graduated. And at the time, um, that was in the early nineties, um, we were seeing the beginnings of the biotech industry taking off. And so I moved to San Francisco, um, along with a lot of other people at the time and got a job in the biotech industry working for Genentech. And, um, I got a bit disillusioned there. And, you know, while I was in undergrad, I um, got very interested in critical theory and um, feminism and things like this. I I was an activist at the time as well. And so I, after working about a year, year and a half at Genentech, I um, switched to um, get a degree in women's studies at San Francisco State. And from there, I... um, Return, you know, I got, I returned back to the science and technology because it was something I had already been long interested in and decided, you know, I wanted to understand science and technology from, um, a different perspective. And so um, one thing led to another, and I moved into anthropology um, after I had done a master's thesis on one of the biotech companies um, in the Bay Area. And so that's how I got into it. I kind of fell into these different fields and landed very nicely and happily in anthropology.
1: So the book looks specifically at West Africa, and it's about West African pharmaceutical circulation that's integrated into inter, uh, transcontinental trade. So I'm taking that from the beginning of the book. It situates the drug market in Nigeria in the context of what we'll, what we'll look into later on in the book as speculative capital. Mm -hmm. And it looks very carefully at the ways that um, not just market um, interactions and practices, but also what's happening outside of Nigeria um, is really impacting not just how we understand the drug market and pharmaceuticals, but how we understand what it is to be a market um, and more... Generally speaking, it's a fascinating book. It's right on the cusp of, I think, a whole new wave of work that we're going to see more of that's trying to integrate really careful, meaningful attention to economics, to markets, and to a deep um, sort of knowledge and understanding of these phenomena within um, a broader study of. History of medicine, anthropology of medicine, history and anthropology of science and STS. So it's fabulous. Congratulations! Thank let's, you. Let's talk about how you came to this topic. What brought you to work on um, pharmaceutical markets in Nigeria specifically, and how did you come to decide to write a book-length project about this?
0: Uh, I, you know, I after I had done this master's thesis on bioprospecting in nineteen ninety seven I decided that in anthropology as an as a graduate student, I wanted to study bioprospecting and that actually um, at first, I thought I would be going to the Andean region to study this because there were a lot of companies that were getting interested in bioprospecting in in the Andean region, but then I also discovered there were several graduate students following you know, following uh, that trend. And I ended up um, taking a look at the advice of a friend of mine of what kind of bioprospecting activities were actually happening in Africa. And I looked around and... Found some very fascinating things going on in the late 90s, early 2000s in Cameroon and Nigeria through um, some NIH-funded uh, research um, that was basically led by a team of Nigerians who had pulled together a number of institutions, uh, including the Smithsonian and the U.S. military, to to bioprospect. It's one of these sort of uh stories where, you know, everything looks good to go, you you go into, you have this project and you go into the field and everything uh, falls apart. And so (laughs) I had had done some preliminary research there and uh, I, so I no longer had a project, but when I had arrived to Nigeria that first time for, and I was there for about two months, in 1999 or 2000, I got very, it was at a time that Nigeria was transitioning out of a very long period of military rule into civilian rule. And I was very fascinated by what people had to say about that at the time. And so my, my interest remained with Science and technology, but then suddenly, I kind of, you know, this whole notion of an area and you know a region and you know started to open up to me, and I just got interested in Nigeria. And I, after the project fell apart, I decided, well, what, what can I do to, you know, to stay here? And I ended up actually working on for a dissertation on AIDS policies and AIDS activism since that was a kind of part of an original component of the first project and so I just tweaked it and turned it in a little bit of a different direction and got interested in thinking about how does science and technology sort of la- you know, land in a place like Nigeria that is in such remarkable and dramatic transition and so it That's how I ended up in in that region.
1: So it sounds like there were some pretty um, significant transformations from dissertation to book then, just given the nature of the projects. Can you talk a little bit about that for you? Maybe specifically, Mm -hmm. what are some of the most important ways that the project changed from one stage to the other?
0: Yeah, mine um, was a bit exceptional because I did not turn um the focus of the dissertation into a book um, when I returned home and spent you know a couple of years writing the dissertation this was and it, again it was on AIDS and AIDS policies and right after I returned, um, we saw the George Bush administration, um, now launched the the PEPFAR program, which stands for the President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief. And what that program essentially did, in term in relation to my project, was um, everything that I had documented during that year, like no longer existed after that program was implemented. And so I felt that. In order to do justice to the dissertation project, I had to also, you know, start looking at this PEPFAR program. But then when I did, I thought it, it turned out to be um, pretty overwhelming. It required um, a lot. It, it required a longer term uh, perspective and research project. And given that I was you know, coming up for tenure, I needed to figure out how I was going to, you know, turn this into a project. So I had one chapter in the dissertation that was about Private, you know, drugs circulating in private drug markets. That was, that was not based on any ethnographic research I did, but was based upon the research that a number of Nigerian academics and and the business community, the the, the drug manufacturing community had had produced over the years. And I also thought, well, if I'm going to do this long-term project now, kind of the what really is turning out to be the rise and fall of the antiretroviral drug, I would have to understand this totally different and separate space that nobody in the AIDS community ever deals with in in Africa, actually, and that is private drug circulation. So I started going into those markets. And once I did, I realized this is a project in and of itself. And so it was a bit of a spin-off with a you know with a real in-depth look of the original dissertation but in no means was you know the same conceptually or even in terms of my object of study it, it dramatically changed and so it, it's it, it really was that tenure that also kind of pushed some of those decisions as well mm-hmm. isn't that interesting how that
1: yep. works I, <laughs> like a lot exactly. of us have been there yeah so okay. what and Your accounting of how the project transformed is actually really interesting. And and I'll just mention one of the things, one of the many things, and we'll talk about this in the course of our hour, that I really love about the book is it's taking a concept, that market, right? That, you know, a lot of people use that word, you know, the drug market, the medical market, 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 and really asking us to explode that notion and get inside of it and think about even, okay, well, what are the assumptions that we're bringing to the notion of market itself right. and what happens you know, when we probe those assumptions and open them up, and we really have to do that in order to be able to talk about anything on a global scale on a, and also anything local. Anyway, there's lots of fascinating, really, really important stuff that's happening here that I think is um, potentially extendable well beyond how we understand Nigeria specifically. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, um, I... You know, it's interesting because um, one of the things, one of the reasons why I continue to go to Nigeria is because um, every time I go, it's it's a place that really trips up our notions of market, of capitalism, of neoliberalism, of risk, of, of so many different terms. And and you know, I mean, what we find in our literatures here about that just doesn't even map on to. What I constantly find there. And so, in taking the market and what happens there, I that yes, you're right. One of the main objectives was to constantly um, unsettle our assumptions about what's happening. But I wanted to also do it in a way that didn't make the Nigerian pharmaceutical market the other, right, mm-hmm. of economics. But and so that's why um, I did a You know, a lot of work around talking about the way that speculative capital becomes important, that offshoring manufacturing becomes important. Um, The book also spends some time in one chapter in India and China to sort of look at – this sort of in as an intersecting point between the Nigerian pharmaceutical trade and the brand name industry's global pharmaceutical circulation and so it was a way of trying to show that you know this isn't just some sort of you know notion of or rehashing the discourse that Africa is delinked from the rest of the world but to really show um the immense ways in which pharmaceutical trade is integrated to the global drug trade. And so that was but to also maybe also makes strange in many ways how we understand the market to be working here and how we understand neoliberalism to be working here. So that was yes, that was the those were ultimately a lot of the objectives to sort of track some of that stuff and you know and in doing so, I, I also had to look at the ways in which you know pharmaceuticals, along with many other commodities, are traveling through these sh- shadow economies as well and to um, and that becomes also quite important in understanding you know what we mean when we say things like generic drugs or illicit drugs or standard or substandard drugs. So yeah, right. And this
1: all starts from chapter one, right? So chapter one looks at several factors that made it possible for um, a couple of transformations to happen. We have right. a transformation of control over the market. So you chart here a transformation in control over national drug distribution that switched from Nigerian pharmacists and North American and European multinationals to Igbo traders from Eastern Nigeria and to generic drug manufacturers in China and India. And the major case study here um, is a place called Idomota Market. I don't don't know if I'm pronouncing anything. You are. are. So (laughs) Idomota Market, can you introduce that as a space for us in terms of your experience with it um, during your fieldwork? work?
0: Idomota Market is located on Lagos Island. Um the city of Lagos in Nigeria is um right on the the coast. And it is a city of twenty million people. It's considered one of the it is the largest city in, in Africa. It is um also considered probably the one of the most <clears throat> Chaotic cities on the planet, and so Udumota is one of I, I would say exemplifies these uh, these these, uh, these stereotypes, uh, so to speak. And um, it's a site where almost all of the secondhand goods that enter into the c- country, which you know makes up the bulk of uh, products that are traded um, within Nigeria. Um, and so it is the, you know, the first place where, um, where drugs are received and inside of the market where all kinds, I mean, every single kind of commodity you can imagine is available for, for sale in this place. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a a massive, uh, market that's, um, basically overlaps in what was one of the real old neighborhoods of, of the city. And um, in about 10 square blocks is where pharmaceuticals are traded, about at least a million dollars worth of drugs are traded in that market every day. so we're talking about a massive amount. Um, the traders who work in that market, as you pointed out, come from most of them come from the eastern part of the country. They're Ebo traders. and um, they essentially uh, are the are the main traders in the country so there are you know large markets like itomota some are even much larger than itomota in the country where there are pharmaceutical traders but what's unique about itomota is that the all of the manufacturers around the globe whether generic or or patented drugs are um or brand name i should say there's not many patented drugs in the country they um sell um, mostly to these traders and from there the traders sell to the rest of um, the country traders through you know throughout the, um, both Nigeria as well as to the West African region and even as far as countries in central Africa such as uh, the Congo in Kinshasa and so it's uh, it it's a very significant place because it's the the entry point for the entire wholesale system throughout the region for private, private circulated drugs.
1: Now, many of these
0: traders actually
1: came to this work as a result of civil war migration. Mm-hmm. Post, so um, late 1960s civil war migration. So, how did what did, what do we need to understand about that basically to understand how they came to work in this job and and why that's significant for understanding the pharmaceutical market in Igbo uh, more generally?
0: Yeah, the um, So there was a civil war in Nigeria in the late 1960s and um, these pharmaceutical traders, the bulk of them come from one town in Imo State which is called Orlu and um, Orlu at the time of the civil war was where the Red Cross and various churches and Oxfam um, Arrived to administer humanitarian um, care, so, you know, sort of medical field triage during the war. And so the folks who are from this town, instead of actually going to fight in the war, they got trained by um, these international organizations to also deliver, you know, medical triage and stuff like that. Now, when the war ended... Um, many of them left town and um, they moved to other parts of Nigeria where they became patent medicine dealers. So basically, um, selling over-the-counter drugs. Um, by the time the early 1980s arrived and then by the mid-1980s, we start to see the entire pharmaceutical market crash as a result of structural adjustment, and also as a result of the new speculative term that the drug industry was taking outside of Nigeria. And so what happened was pharmacists, Nigerian pharmacists who had been working for and been trained by the Global brand name companies who had been doing really, really good business in Nigeria it was a, it was an exceptionally uh, good foreign market for them up until this moment. They lost control of the system, and the Ebo traders basically stepped in and took over. And so this is and that that so this is the how that whole trajectory works. And they so so we as you. As you point out, the Nigerian pharmacists and the brand name companies basically completely lose ground to eBo traders and, um, new networks that they develop then with generic companies around the world.
1: So as this transformation is happening, this actually um, really nicely takes us into the next chapter. So um, uh, what we just talked about, right, this post-late 1960s Civil War migration is one of a couple, at least, of factors that are responsible um, that you chart here for the transformation of Idumota into this um, massive market from what right. it had been, right, which is like strictly residential in the right. 1970s. So as a re- or in addition to this migration after the Civil War, there's also a 1970s oil boom driven right. by OPEC and then a bust. And by the right. early 1980s, as you've um, just described a little bit, Nigeria is deep in an economic crisis. There's a right. crash of global commodity and oil markets. There's a devaluation of the Nigerian currency, widespread poverty, and one of the reasons this is really important is that it meant that most Nigerians couldn't afford brand-name drugs. Right. So brand-name companies, right, abandoned the Nigerian pharmaceutical market, and this low purchasing power meant it was too much of a risk for these companies to participate in the market. Now, mm-hmm. I'm emphasizing the word risk because as we move into the next chapter, chapter two, you talk specifically about Um, how the notion of risky populations can help us understand um, something important about what's happening here. So maybe let's pause and move there. Can you talk about um, what is a risky population Mm -hmm. in this context and why is it important to understand what's happening?
0: Yeah, I use that term to mark the transition that you're referring to here. So so when I'm talking about Risk here, I'm referring to both um, the government's perception of risk, and as the Nigerian government that is, and also the pharmaceutical companies' um, um, conception of risk. So in the 1970s, the government is basically providing. Um, You know, things like pensions and free education, the drug company and, you know, to to basically to its population, the drug companies are also, um, you know, seeing the Nigerian population as um, some, you know, as buoyant consumers, right? And so here um, are two entities that are essentially providing services, you know, in a buoyant economy to the Nigerian population. Once the economy begins to really uh, go down as a result of structural adjustment, um, all of these things start to get taken away. And so, for example, um, it's not just simply that... Uh, Nigerians begin to lose things like free education but that they are now protesting the fact that they've been you know that the majority of the population has essentially been rendered impoverished as a result of structural adjustment implementation and so there's a number of protests and um, and the same thing goes with the corporations. People can no longer purchase drugs, and so the market is looking quite risky. And so, it, there's a the result is market abandonment. On the government end, there's there's um, intense military violence that's unleashed upon uh, upon uh, upon the general population. And so, I'm I'm interested here in how both. Um, um, the pharmaceutical companies and the governments go from seeing. Uh, the population as one for which they, you know, they provide services for the most part to, you know, becoming completely risky such that, you know, violence and market abandonment become the answer. And so that's based, I, I use that term to capture this transition because it's, it was, um, ex- exceptionally quick. The, this wasn't slow going and it was, um, exceptionally violent. So the
1: pharmaceutical industry remakes itself right, as a result of all of this by becoming tied to the speculative marketplace. And you talk in this yeah. chapter, um, and we won't have time to talk too much about it, but I just want to mark it because it will, I'm sure, come back up later. You talk about the importance of the industry pursuing speculative capital. yeah, And then take us through a couple of examples of two companies, Upjohn and yeah. Pfizer, um, that both abandoned the Nigerian yeah.
0: Yeah, I talk quite extensively about those two uh, companies. They're they're good examples to show um, what was also at risk for these companies. So I wanted to show that it wasn't just simply that the Nigerian market, as it was tanking, and that people could no longer buy drugs. That that was the sole reason that drug companies took to pull out of the Nigerian market. But that there was this other thing on the horizon in the early 1980s and that was you know that companies who were not doing very well remember there was a there, you know, it's coming out of a 1970s global recession, and and they themselves uh, didn't exactly have a lot of drugs in the pipeline. They had a lot of patents expiring, generics competition, you know, things like this. And so, as they themselves were struggling to stay afloat, the opportunity to um, actually, um, in you know excuse me, get finance capital from like Wall Street banks, etc. Pre- presented itself. And so, um, and one of the things that, I, okay, so there was a number of sort of, factors that um, were involved in pursuing speculative capital um, that ultimately led to this consolidation frenzy. Because one of the things that the, you know, that investment firms um, said to companies was in exchange for this finance capital, though you're going to have to show short term gains, which we know that drug companies can't exactly do because it, you know, it takes, you um, you know, 10 to 15 years to bring a drug to market. And so to actually show short-term gains in terms of not just profits, but rates of growth become pretty impossible. So the way to actually meet those... those demands was to do things like acquire other companies, merge and consolidate. And so we saw this huge consolidation frenzy that happened in the 1990s. And at the same time that all of those mergers and acquisitions took place, companies were also massively dumping assets, so including entire markets like Nigeria. Um, and, you know, the end game was to basically come out top, uh, out on top. Um, and so I show how Upjohn at this time was basically the ninth largest company in the world. Pfizer was number one and being the ninth in the world wasn't even enough because at the end of the day Pfizer and other companies basically ate up John up so what I tried to demonstrate was that you know the stakes of sort of losing um, a buoyant population that is buying drugs is also converging with these other higher stakes to stay completely on top of the game in the 1990s because otherwise you could basically lose everything so I'm so the point in that chapter was sh- to show the ways that both structural adjustment and speculative capital become completely important to um, how the drug companies um, um, make decisions about um, abandoning the Nigerian market.
1: Thank you so much. Now, as we um, move through this story, we move through the brand name market crashing in the 1990s. Now, this results in a drug scarcity problem, um, and this prompts new actors to step in. And you talk um, in Chapter 3 in a way that we won't have time, again, to talk too much about, but I just want to mark because it's important Mm -hmm. to understanding the sort of global reach, right, of this story – Um, This prompts Nigerians involved in the international narcotics trade to build a new generic market, which attracts Asian pharmaceutical firms. And so there's a whole part of this story that's about China and India and beyond and the ways that they are intimately and integrally um, enmeshed in what's happening in Nigeria. Yes. So one of the things that's happening, though, um, as well in this chapter is a consideration of markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and this isn't just, you know, let's look at different markets. This is really um, taking stock of what it is that a market is. And so there's a mm-hmm. really fascinating discussion in this chapter um, of the ontology of markets. Mm-hmm. Now unofficial markets um, by the late 1980s as a result of all of this are growing up in what you call the interstices of urban space in neighborhood public spaces in traffic jams, on roads. and there's a whole um, discussion about these markets. Are they legal? Are they illegal? Are right. they markets at all? And right. you take us into this really fascinating court case in 2001 between Idemota Traders and the Pharmacists Council of Nigeria um, that really hinged on one central question: Was Idomota a market? Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about that case and what's for you important about that case um, in terms of how it informs our understanding of the ontology of markets?
0: Yeah, that case um, was um, very interesting because um, w- once you know, once the pharmaceutical market began to crash and we see new drugs coming in alongside all of these new generic products that are completely unfamiliar to nigerians but are you know nevertheless coming in are a, a barrage of um fake products and their entryway into the country is usually through what are called unofficial markets and so and 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 the unofficial markets are, you know, just basically grew as a result of structural adjustment. People who were struggling to survive um, this remarkable and massive transformation of the economy um, found themselves in, you know, the markets trying to, you know, make their way for the most part. And so what we begin to see then is this growth of what, you know, one can call an unofficial Market, right, as you were talking about, and so the case then. Um, the, well, in the process of the growing of the markets, we start to see in in a largely unregulated environment, new regulations come down to try to control fake drugs, and so one was the establishment of the Pharmacists Council of Nigeria, which was meant. Uh, to regulate drug premises, meaning they're trying to eradicate the unofficial drug markets that are now popping up everywhere. And um, they did this in part not only to uh, eradicate fake drugs, but also pharmacists, wanted to take back the system that they once controlled. This was another motive. So what they did was they said to Itamoto drug traders, who at the time would probably amounted to anywhere between four and 500 or so traders. um, This is in the early 1990s. They said, well, we're going to take your, your licenses away because um, you're not allowed to sell in what they called an open market. And so the, the traders took the PCN to court and said, uh, well, um, we don't sell in a market. Mm-hmm. And um, PCN, and so, you know, th- this this is what became very interesting, was that um, a case that was about licenses and drug premises suddenly turned into this question about, as to whether or not the market is actually a market. And the reason um, why I found this debate um, completely interesting and important was um, the fact that the law itself in regulating fake drugs cannot account for this transformed urban space, right? And, And so that's part of the issue. But the other part of the issue was that there are also all of these other kinds of politics that are going on that transcends the law anyway. So even if... The PCN were to get its way, which it didn't at this time and shut down Idamota market. It would also mean shutting down the, the, the entire wholesale, you know, a trade throughout the West African region. And, um, you know, this is a place where the Yoruba, Traditional elite also own all the property. So they're making rents. You have, you have hundreds, if not thousands of people who are dependent upon this lucrative trade, who provide various kinds of services, who would lose their livelihoods. So there's a lot at stake in both keeping these markets open, because then you run the risk of fake drugs traveling through. And then also a lot at stake in shutting it down, meaning that The whole drug supply could just get stopped throughout the West African region. So the stakes were very high. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So as we move from
1: here, um, we move into another form of speculation. So we've talked in the previous chapter about this idea of speculative capital. Um, We move in uh, in moving to Chapter 4, to looking at speculation on life's chances, as you put it here. Mm -hmm. So this is a chapter that looks at the situation in light of profound um, unpredictability and volatility of the market. There are new forms of valuation you describe here. There are unofficial markets, changing credit structures, debt negotiations, high-risk entrepreneurialism, and I'm just (laughs) taking this from the chapter, right, pricing strategies, price wars. Okay, so what does that mean for the individual? What does that mean for the person? working um, as a you know in this industry in this context and this chapter explores what it looks like to as you call it, hustle the day in mm. pursuit of cash right and you take us into the experience of individuals who are doing this. Now the right. chapter in taking us into the experience of um, these individuals introduces the idea of derivative life. Right. Mm-hmm. These are forms of speculation that are involved in this hustle that are tied to what you call speculating on life's chances. Yeah. so can you talk about this form of speculation um so that we can understand this in this broader context yeah. of speculation more generally here
0: yeah um um one of I think one of the things that's um really important here is the way in which um what what we now have um, is, you know, this extreme market volatility that underlies, like, all entrepreneurial action in the market. Um, and so what I wanted to do was to show how um, the ways that people, you know, market makers and folks working in the market, the ways that they act, take action, you know, has... Um, is about one. It's always a risk. I mean, in, in fact, right now um, in Nigeria, the the currency um, ups and downs are so volatile and violent that there's there's many people are just going out of business because they're having trouble actually anticipating, you know, making a buy at a wholesale level. And then trying to move it through the market when um, the currency is moving up and down, right? So if it's if, if you're buying something and the currency changes, it I, you know in a way that works against your business, then you can lose basically everything. So I I talk I, I I I say that this is about speculating on life's chances that it's not just about business because everything becomes that thing that's at stake, right? Every you know. Everything. Um, And so one of the things that I do in the book is describe how um, various, you know, folks who have been trying to deal with this business for a long time, you know, operate and try to... you know, create situations where it's like, all right, I'm going to buy and sell this very sure thing that, you know, Nigerians are will buy. And then they might think about taking risks on something else. And what this ends up doing then is, you know, reproducing a particular kind of drug market structure that ultimately um, doesn't match up with, uh, you know, basically human needs. And so, um, I got very interested in this, this, this struggle to survive the way that the struggle to survive actually then creates these market conditions that are not so good for consumers, um, at the end of the day in terms of their health needs. And so, um, it's just another example of thinking about you know you know really what is a market at the end of the day right um, that we're very used to thinking about markets as these things you know where um, supply and demand are 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 matching each other in some kind of even way when in fact um, you know, the market is just used as this tool for people to actually try to survive the day.
1: And the chapter pays really careful attention to something we don't really have time to talk about, but mm-hmm. is really important here. And that is sort of theories of the market uh, more generally. Yeah. And specifically, yeah. there's a lot of really wonderful stuff here on non-equilibrium theories of the market. Um, And you look at a range of them, right? Yoruba, um, Igbo, and also Chicago and Austrian neoliberal market theory. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff in terms of market theory and non-equilibrium ideas specifically that's happening here. But you mentioned um, just before that these circumstances are not so good for consumers in terms of their health needs, and this is very much a focus of the next chapter. Mm -hmm. Now, as drugs are priced lower and lower to appeal to a relatively impoverished market, price differentials disappear pretty soon um, kind of down the road, right, because the drugs are already priced so low. So the next bit to change if you want to make money on this whole thing is the chemistry of right. drugs, And you talk about strategies for changing um, the active pharmaceutical ingredients so they become kind of cheaper and right. more competitive. And you um, talk about this in the context of chemical arbitrage here. So it's really, really interesting. Yes. Now, as we move um, into the chapter, though, you look at the ways that the structure of the Nigerian pharmaceutical market and the need for the treatment of diseases don't match up right? Um, Right. These two things don't match up. Now, the drug classes that were marketed since the 1970s in Nigeria simply don't match with changing microbial and human biologies. Mm. So existing drug therapies aren't um, effective at treating existing diseases. Right, We need to talk about that. So (laughs) um, so at this point, I'm just going to kind of open this up back to you. Can you talk about for you some of the most important implications of that in terms of the larger arguments um, of the book and of the project?
0: Yeah, um, I think that when we talk about access to drugs for um, various kinds of neglected diseases or access to drugs that are usually expensive for you know diseases like HIV and etc. That um, I think in the past, the biggest debate has revolved around like patents and price and stuff like that. But I but, you know, I think there's just been little attention paid to how people actually, you know, get their drugs and where are those drugs and are they even available. And so for me, trying to really detail the the way that local biologies and um, market structure are linked up or not or ha- or what kind of relationship they actually have becomes really important because um, it for me at the you know it's it we have to ask these questions about what um, you know what are the structures of these markets? You know how exactly do they work? How are people actually accessing? And in accessing this, what kinds of other problems are arising? Things like um, the use of substandard drugs, or the use of fake drugs, or the problem, or, or immense problems with these older generation drugs that are very cheap and that end up on the market and pr- that produce drug resistance, right? And so these are kind these are the kinds of questions that don't often get asked in global health circles. And so I think the implications then are ultimately quite huge once we start looking at, you know, these other sort of economic issues in line with global health concerns.
1: You talk about some of these problems specifically in terms of understanding these dynamics of drug resistance and also market structure as a social life of bioequivalence, a dream of bioequivalence, this is really fascinating. Can you just explain um, what that means for listeners?
0: Yeah, I, um, it's a very simple, you know, sort of idea that, um, um, that there's a perception, you know, in that part of the world where, um, um, you know, where, well, actually, there's an experience, I should say, of taking drugs that um, where one is always at risk, because one doesn't know if, you know, you're taking a substandard drug, a fake drug, a, a you know, or, a, right. a, you know, That's so you, you you just, you just don't really know, even if it's coming from the manufacturer. And so I talk about, about you know the way that the people consumers it's my one place in the book where i deal with consumers because i mostly am dealing with sort of wholesale drug distribution systems across continent and locally um and it's it's just this this it's this thing where people just um, they imagine the pharmaceutical metropole to be something very different right where we're all getting our good drugs and and it's it's just not wanting to deal with this anymore and it and it falls into a more generalized kind of pre, you know precarity in life and um, so you know a social life of bioequivalence is about that but i um, the way that i enter into talking about it is to think about the the sort of the openness the flexibility of markets alongside with a number of STS scholars have talked about the openness of chemistry and the ways in which th- those two things really need to be thought uh, together because it is the market structure that actually produces or gives rise to um, these variations in drug chemistry. And so, um, and so, you know, I I take that and swing it back into, you know, consumers' dreams of having some safety in the drug supply.
1: That's right. There's this really fascinating uh, moment in this chapter. And this is something that for me was stars, you know, circles right in the margins. Make sure to make note of this. It's this fascinating moment where you're relating this idea. Um, of kind of, you know, the openness of chemistry to Whitehead and the idea of a molecule's Mm -hmm. relationship to its environment. So there's this really, I mean, the book is full of (laughs) moments like this, but for me, this was one of the really striking moments where you're asking us to even, um, kind of rethink, not just what a market is, but what a molecule is in terms of relationality, um, in a, in a way that, um, I think is not going to be, um, self-evident for a lot of readers. Um, certainly wasn't for me. And that really changed the way I think about molecules. So thank you. Oh, <laughs> thank, thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> me away from this with a different notion of, <laughs> of molecule. even. Okay. So as we move into the book and we move into the next chapter, um, we move into a chapter that looks at the processes through which new types of monopolies are arising in the context of this international pharmaceutical industry. So there's this new speculative market, right? Um, and you describe the ways in which there's new debt, intellectual property, and drug marketing regimes that are implemented in the context of this um, speculative market connection in the 1980s. So there's a lot going on in this chapter um, yeah. that I'll just name and I'll ask you to talk about maybe a bit of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you talk about the ways that pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical marketing strategies shape how drugs are distributed in West Africa, and you you take us into the process of um, the kind of selection of which drugs to to distribute in the region by medical representatives, so listeners who are particularly interested in that um, can turn to the early parts of Chapter 6. But then there's this discussion of intellectual property law. Now, this is super fascinating um, now, in this discussion more generally of intro- intellectual property law and patents specifically, you remind us that people have argued that patents um, have been responsible for poor people's lack of access to drugs. But here, this doesn't really work because um, in Nigeria, patented drugs aren't marketed there in any kind of a widespread way, right? And at, by this point in the book, um, we kind of we have all this background to help us understand that, right? right. How it came that way. So instead, brand name manufacturers are not after patents. They're instead after monopolies across markets, which you don't need a patent for. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, What's important about that um, for the larger implications of the story?
0: Yeah, I – sorry, I wanted to – you know, I think for many of us in the 1990s, we thought that the patent was the thing that we needed to focus on. But once I started to understand how this market works in Nigeria, <clears throat> excuse me, I, you know, I, I was just, uh, you know, I couldn't figure out how to explain intellectual property law when in fact, um, you know, there are no, Drugs that are marketed, no patented drugs that are mart- marketed in in the country, um, with with uh, a few exceptions, and so um, my aim with that was to sort of talk about and you know what so what is going on here with intellectual property law, and um, and so I went back to IP law and I and and started to ask, well, what is the the thing that facilitates you know um the you know monopolies in terms of you on the one hand you have um you have a manufacturers monopoly and then you have a consumer what is the thing that gets those monopolized drugs to the consumers and it's the market and so i go through and you know and as you've mentioned in the book i describe the way that that market basically disappeared so if the market is Disappearing here, and it doesn't actually exist a, a patented market to distribute drugs. Um, then what can we say about intellectual property law? Um, so I the, the one of the things I w- was trying to also get at, too, was to look at how, um, going back to price, I mean, there's, throughout the book, I'm, I talk about how important price becomes in, in drug circulation and that um, a monopoly can be had um, simply by, you know, on the one hand, you've got, um Sort of mid-range markets like India and Brazil, which are quite strong because they have um, pharmaceutical manufacturing that can challenge patented and brand-name drugs. You don't have that in Nigeria, right? And so, one of the, w- w- the the strategy for those mid-range markets are to basically get a patent and challenge the global companies, right? So that's why it works in that way in in India and Brazil and other, other countries like that. But in a place like Nigeria, where you have manufacturers who are really only making like anti-malarials or, or, or pain relievers like aspirin and paracetamol and things like that, um, they, they can't challenge the companies. And so um, the strategy there to maintain price across markets then is to simply not market the drugs and so this is why you see a huge absence of cancer drugs of hiv drugs where they do circulate are on um like the the foreign donation market so this is where also the global health you know, comes in because, uh, or the global health kinds of programs, um, whether foreign or domestic um, come in, because that's where those patented drugs then circulate. They don't ever circulate on the private market. And I would venture to say not only in Nigeria, but throughout Africa. And one of the reasons for this is to, um especially in Nigeria, and this was told to me by Marketers working in the country is that they do not want um, patented drugs circul you know, circulating in a market at a low price um and that could easily be smuggled back into Europe because it would undercut those prices in Europe. And so the idea here is that when those patented drugs do come into, into the country and they might land in a few pharmacies, they are actually uh, more expensive than the drug prices in Europe. And the whole point of that is to... Um, discourage any smuggling back into um, the European market, which they'll do anything to protect. So and then I, I did introduce debt and the only and I'll just mention briefly uh, the the issue of debt regime becomes important because it does manage to um, wipe out the competition from, um, you know, ever, you know, challenging the brand name uh, pharmaceutical industry, which um, it had, I would say, the Nigerian manufacturers had a chance to do um, in the 1970s, but structural adjustment managed to sort of level that opportunity for them. So there's, yeah, you're right, there's a lot going on there, but the idea was to show how debt and how intellectual property Um, are working together and also specifically with intellectual property to just show um, that it's not that the patent that matters, but that a strategy to obtain a monopoly is going to be different across markets. But um, the key here is to protect the price integrity, uh, especially in Europe and North America, where those markets um, matter the most to the industry.
1: So thank you so much, Chris. So we're now, we're almost, almost at the conclusion yeah. of our conversation, but we're certainly at the conclusion of the book. Now, mm-hmm. there's some wonderful stuff happening in the conclusion. You take us um, on a trip with you and a friend to a laboratory, right? Zenrex, which is not the real name, right? But it's the name right. Zenrex Laboratories. Um, we meet... Um, uh, some really interesting people who have a sense of enthusiasm and it seems like optimism about the future. Mm-hmm. So that's a really wonderful part of the first um, bit of the, in, the conclusion. And then you remind us um, later on in the conclusion what the book is not, right? The book, this is not a story of big, bad, wolf, corporations that are greedy, right? right? I mean, this is not a story that's in those terms. In fact, it's asking us to avoid um explaining what's happening and understanding what's happening in terms of corporate greed and instead to think about structure, to think about, as you put it here, the structural logics of pharmaceutical capital through which corporate practices can be understood. Greed's built into the system itself, and actors are negotiating the the constraints of this structure and the constraints of these market conditions. Um, So it's a very different way, and I think uh, a, a much more useful way of understanding how to enter into this story. Now perhaps the last question that I'll ask you before we come to the conclusion, though, takes us forward. I mean, this is something that you touch on in the conclusion as well. Looking forward, for you, what are some of the most important implications of this study for motivating future work on global markets? Um, Like, what would you love to see um, coming out of this book? Or or how would you love to see future work on global markets and pharmaceuticals? Like, what directions do you think are particularly exciting? And and what's your dream field look like after this?
0: Yeah, I... It would, you know, one of the things that I tried to do was to really scale STS alongside markets and economies and things like that. And I I would love to see um, more work in anthropology that can, you know, figure out how do we think about ethnographies of systems and um, so, meaning that, you know, if you're studying in, in one particular place, how is it that you begin to understand that place and what's going on there situated more broadly, you know, in sort of some, in, and ask more macro questions about it? And I think that, um, um, I think that that becomes really, you know, really, I, I it's i think it's really important in order to sort of reframe you know what we mean by neoliberalism or what we mean by capitalism and so just to take the example you mentioned you know i i i do say that i it the explanation of corporate greed is is not enough but that my details throughout the book is to suggest that things are actually far worse than just corporate greed. That when we start to really examine the, the violence of the system itself, that corporate greed is like the last thing that we should really be caring about. We should be caring about the ways in which all of this is functioning within a system. And so I would like to see more ethnography Um, asking questions about um, sort of multiple layers of systems, whether or not it's even about pharmaceuticals, but to um, be able to sort of link and scale, you know, um, from an object of study through um, more macro questions about systems themselves.
1: So, Chris, we're now at the end of our conversation, I just have a couple questions for you. Now, of course, um, there's a ton of material. We've already signaled moments, um, mm-hmm. a few of many moments in the course of our conversation where this is true, but there's a ton of material we didn't talk about that's um, that's in the book. Is there anything in particular that we didn't talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
0: I think I just did hear at the end um, that, you know, I, I really... This was um, trying to take up Marcus and Fisher's um, suggestion of ethnographies of systems and, uh, and figuring out how to do it, and um, I, you know, I, I would just I would like to see um, more of that kind of work. But it was something that I. Um, very much tried to do. And I think there's things that you lose in the process, like some of, I mean, like going into Itemota, I could, there was a moment where I, several moments where I thought, I just want to study this market because every time I went in, my learning curve was just exponential and it never really leveled off. But it was the traders themselves who kept pushing me back to system because I would go in and they'd say things like, Oh, last week when I was in Lebanon, or let me tell you about the drug distribution system in Pakistan or, you know, things like this. So always sort of signaling something broader to, to what's going on and, Um, and so it was, uh, it was a huge challenge, but, um, it was, and also very experimental and I would like to see other people come up and do and refine it and figure out how we can like, you know, do it better.
1: So now that the book is out, what's next for you? What are you currently working on?
0: Um, I am looking at, um, I'm looking at questions of the technological, what I'm calling the technological imagination in Nigeria and um, perhaps throughout other parts of Africa. And what I mean by that is I've been talking to and interviewing scientists for um, well over a decade now, and I'm trying to make sense of some of the things that they have to say about their work, including most of them who see their, um, their work as acts of social justice and also who um, sort of speak as if they're coming out of that vision of African independence And African liberation. And so I'm interested in thinking about sort of technological imaginations alongside these histories of African liberation. And so we'll see where that goes.
1: Well, best of luck with that work. And thank you so much for talking with me about this one. It's really
0: been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Carla. I appreciate it.
1: You've been listening to new books in science, technology and society. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next time.